Section 14 of the Journal of Lewis and Clark. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Journal of Lewis and Clark by Meriwether Lewis and William Clark. Chapter 12. Great Spirit. Good Spirits of a Lesser Degree. Ideas of a Future State. Priests. Superstition. Religion. Anecdote. Fearless of Death. Dying Speech. Character of the Indians. Love of Country. Sons of Honor, etc. It is certain the Indians acknowledge one supreme being, or giver of life, who presides over all things. That is, the Great Spirit, and they look up to him as the source of good, from whom no evil can proceed. They also believe in a bad spirit, to whom they ascribe great power, and suppose that through his means all the evils which befall mankind are inflicted. To him, therefore, do they pray in their distresses, begging that he would either avert their troubles or moderate them when they are no longer avoidable. They say that the Great Spirit, who is infinitely good, neither wishes nor is able to do any mischief to mankind, but on the contrary that he showers down on them all the blessings they deserve, whereas the evil spirit is continually employed in contriving how he may punish the human race, and to do which he is not only possessed of the will, but of the power. They hold also that there are good spirits of a lesser degree, who have their particular departments in which they are constantly contributing to the happiness of mortals. These they suppose to preside over all the extraordinary productions of nature, such as those lakes, rivers, or mountains that are of an uncommon magnitude, and likewise the beasts, birds, fishes, and even vegetables, or stones that exceed the rest of their species in size or singularity. To all of these they pay some kind of adoration. But at the same time I fancy that the ideas they annex to the world's spirit are very different from the conceptions more enlightened nations entertain of it. They appear to fashion to themselves corporeal representations of their gods, and believe them to be of a human form, though of a nature more excellent than man. Of the same kind are their sentiments relative to futurity. They doubt not but they shall exist in some future state. They, however, fancy that their employments there will be somewhat similar to those they are engaged in here, without the labor and difficulties annexed to them in this period of their existence. They consequently expect to be translated to a delightful country, where they shall always have a clear, unclouded sky and enjoy a perpetual spring, where the forests will be abound with game, and the lakes with fish, which might be taken without a painful exertion of skill or laborious pursuit. In short, that they shall live forever in regions of plenty, and enjoy every gratification they delight in here, in a greater degree. To intellectual pursuits they are strangers, nor are those included in their schemes of happiness. They expect that even these animal pleasures will be proportioned and distributed according to their merit. The skillful hunter, the bold and successful warrior, will be entitled to a greater share than those who, through indolence or want of skill, cannot boast any superiority over the common herd. The priests of the Indians are at the same time their physicians and their conjurers. Whilst they heal their wounds or cure their diseases, they interpret dreams, give them protective charms, and satisfy that desire which is so prevalent among them of searching into futurity. How well they execute the latter part of their professional engagements, 
and the methods they make use of on some of these occasions, I have already shown in the exertions of the priest of the Kilistinoes, who was fortunate enough to succeed in his extraordinary attempt near Lake Superior. They frequently are successful, likewise in administering the salubrious herbs they have acquired a knowledge of, but that the ceremonies they make use of during the administration of them contributes to their success, I shall not take upon me to assert. When any of the people are ill, the person who is invested with this triple character of doctor, priest, and magician sits by the patient day and night, rattling in his ears a goad shell filled with dry beans called the chichicue, and making a disagreeable noise that cannot be well described. This uncouth harmony, one would imagine, should disturb the sick person and prevent the good effects of the doctor's prescription. But on the contrary, they believe that the method made use of contributes to his recovery by diverting from his malignant purposes the evil spirit who has inflicted the disorder, or at least that it will take off his attention so that he shall not increase the malady. This they are credulous enough to imagine he is constantly on the watch to do, and would carry his inveteracy to a fatal length if they did not thus charm him. I could not discover that they make use of any other religious ceremonies than those I have described. Indeed, on the appearance of the new moon they dance and sing, but it is not evident that they pay that planet any adoration. They only seem to rejoice at the return of a luminary that makes the night cheerful, and which serves to light them on their way when they travel during the absence of the sun. Notwithstanding, Mr. Adair has asserted that the nations among whom he resided observe with very little variation all the rites appointed by the Mosaic Law, I own I could never discover among the tribes that lie but a few degrees to the northwest the least traces of the Jewish religion, except it be admitted that one particular female custom and their divisions into tribes carry with them proof sufficient to establish this assertion. The Jesuits and French missionaries have also pretended that the Indians had, when they first traveled into America, some notions, though these were dark and confused, of the Christian institution that they have been greatly agitated at the sight of a cross, and given proofs by the impressions made on them that they were not entirely unacquainted with the sacred mysteries of Christianity. I need not say that these are two glaring absurdities to be credited, and could only receive their existence, from the zeal of those fathers, who endeavored at once to give the public a better opinion of the success of their missions, and to support the cause they were engaged in. The Indians appear to be, in their religious principles, rude and uninstructed. The doctrines they hold are few and simple, and such as have been generally impressed on the human mind, by some means or other, in the most ignorant ages. They, however, have not deviated, as many other uncivilized nations, and too many civilized ones have done, into idolatrous modes of worship. They venerate indeed and make offerings to the wonderful parts of the creation, as I have before observed. But whether these rites are performed on account of the impressions such extraordinary appearances make on them, or whether they consider them as the peculiar charge or the unusual place of residence of the invisible spirits they acknowledge, I cannot positively determine. The human mind, in its uncultivated state, is apt to ascribe the extraordinary occurrences of nature, such as earthquakes, thunder, or hurricanes, to the interposition of unseen beings the troubles and disasters also that are re-annexed to a savage life. The apprehensions attendant on the precarious subsistence and those numberless inconveniences which man in his improved state has found means to remedy are supposed to proceed from the interposition of evil spirits. 
The savage, consequently, lives in continual apprehensions of their unkind attacks, and to avert them has recourse to charms, to the fantastic ceremonies of his priest, or the powerful influence of his manitouse. Fear has, of course, a greater share in his devotions than gratitude, and he pays more attention to deprecating the wrath of the evil than to securing the favor of the good beings. The Indians, however, entertain these absurdities in common with those of every part of the globe who have not been illuminated with that religion, which can only disperse the clouds of superstition and ignorance, and they are as free from error as people can be that have not been favored with its instinctive doctrines. In Penobscot, a settlement in the province of Maine, in the northeast parts of New England, the wife of a soldier was taken in labor, and notwithstanding every necessary assistance was given her, could not be delivered. In this situation she remained for two or three days, the persons around her expecting that the next pang would put an end to her existence. An Indian woman, who accidentally passed by, heard the groans of the unhappy sufferer, and inquired from whence they proceeded. Being made acquainted with the desperate circumstances attending the case, she told the informant that if she might be permitted to see the person, she did not doubt that she could be of great service to her. The surgeon that had attended, and the midwife who was then present, having given up every hope of preserving their patient, the Indian woman was allowed to make use of any method she thought proper. She accordingly took a handkerchief and bound it tight over the nose and mouth of the woman. This immediately brought on suffocation and from the struggles that consequently ensued she was in a few seconds delivered. The moment this was achieved, and time enough to prevent any fatal effect, the handkerchief was taken off. The long-suffering patient, thus happily relieved from her pains, soon after perfectly recovered, to the astonishment of those who had been witness to the desperate situation. The reason given by the Indian for this hazardous method of proceeding was that desperate disorders required desperate remedies that as she observed the exertions of nature were not sufficiently forcible to effect the desired consequence, she thought it necessary to augment their force which could only be done by some mode that was violent in the extreme. An Indian meets death when it approaches him in his hut with the same resolution he has often faced him in the field. His indifference relative to this important article which is the source of so many apprehensions to almost every other nation is truly admirable. When his fate is pronounced by the physician, and it remains no longer uncertain, he harangues those about him with the greatest composure. If he be a chief, and has a family, he makes a kind of funeral oration, which he concludes by giving to his children such advice for the regulation of their conduct as he thinks necessary. He then takes leave of his friends, and issues out orders for the preparation of a feast, which is designed to regale those of his tribe that can come to pronounce his eulogium. The character of the Indians, like that of other uncivilized nations, is composed of a mixture of ferocity and gentleness. They are at once guided by passions and appetites which they hold in common with the fiercest beasts that inhabit the woods, and are possessed of virtues which do honor to human nature. In the following estimate I shall endeavor to forget, on the one hand, the prejudices of the Americans, usually annex to the word Indian epithets that are disgraceful to human nature, and who view them as savages and cannibals, whilst with equal care I avoid my partiality towards them, as some must naturally arise from the favorable reception I have met with during my stay among them. That the Indians are of a cruel, revengeful, inexorable disposition, 
that they will watch whole days unmindful of the calls of nature, and make their way through pathless and almost unbounded woods, subsisting only on the scanty produce of them, to pursue and avenge themselves of an enemy, that they hear unmoved the piercing eeries of such as unhappily fall into their hands, and receive a diabolical pleasure from the tortures they inflict on their prisoners, I readily grant. But let us look on the reverse of this terrifying picture, and we shall find them temperate both in their diet and potations. It must be remembered that I speak of those tribes who have little or no communication with Americans that they withstand, with unexampled patience, the attacks of hunger, or the inclemency of the seasons, and esteem the gratification of their appetites but as a secondary consideration. We shall likewise see them social and humane to those whom they consider as their friends, and even to their adopted enemies, and ready to partake with them of that last morsel, or to risk their lives in their defense. In contradiction to the report of many other travelers, all of which have been tinctured with prejudice, I can assert that notwithstanding the apparent indifference with which an Indian meets his wife and children after a long absence, an indifference proceeding rather from custom than insensibility, he is not unmindful of the claims either of connubial or parental tendencies. Accustomed from their youth to innumerable hardships, they soon become superior to a sense of danger or the dread of death and their fortitude, implanted by nature, and nurtured by example, by precept and accident, never experience a moment's allay. Though slothful and inactive whilst their stores of provision remain unexhausted, and their foes are at a distance, they are indefatigable and persevering in pursuit of their game or in circumventing their enemies. If they are artful in designing and ready to take every advantage, if they are cool and deliberate in their counsels, and cautious in the extreme, either of discovering their sentiments or of revealing a secret, they might at the same time boast of possessing qualifications of a more animated nature, of the sagacity of a hound, the penetrating sight of a lynx, the cunning of a fox, the agility of a bounding doe, and the unconquerable fierceness of the tiger." In their public characters, as forming part of a community, they possess an attachment for that band to which they belong, unknown to the inhabitants of any other country. They combine, as if they were actuated only by one soul against the enemies of their nation, and banish from their minds every consideration opposed to this. They consult without unnecessary opposition, or without giving way to the excitements of envy or ambition on those measures necessary to be pursued for the destruction of those who have drawn on themselves their displeasure. No selfish views ever influence their advice or obstruct their consultation, nor is it in the power of bribes or threats to diminish the love they bear for their country. The honor of their tribe and the welfare of their nation is the first and most predominant emotion of their hearts, and from hence proceed in a great measure all their virtues and their vices. Actuated by this, they brave every danger, endure the most exquisite torments, and expire triumphing in their fortitude, not as a personal qualification, but as a national characteristic. From thence also flows that insatiable revenge towards those with whom they are at war, and all the consequent horrors that disgrace their name. Their uncultivated mind, being incapable of judging of the propriety of an action, 
in opposition to their passions, which are totally insensible of the controls of reason and humanity, they know not how to keep their fury within any bounds, and consequently that courage and resolution, which would otherwise do them honor, degenerates into a savage ferocity. But this short dissertation must suffice. The limits of my work will not permit me to treat the subject more copiously, or to pursue it with a logical regularity. The observations already made by my readers on preceding pages will, I trust, render it unnecessary, as by them they will be enabled to form a tolerable, just idea of the people I have been describing. Experience teaches that anecdotes and relations of particular events, however trifling they might appear, enable us to form a truer judgment of the manners and customs of a people, and are much more declaratory of their real state than the most studied and elaborate disquisitions without these aids. End of section 14